0: Our title for the message is Separation from Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham's life, when I got to thinking about it, it really involved just one long series of separations. He was separated from his brother Haran. Remember when his brother had died, before he even left Ur of the Chaldees? He was separated from his father, obviously, because his father died when, in Haran name of a city. After he left Ur, he went to Haran. Obviously, he must have been separated from his mother at some point in time. She must have died because she's not even mentioned. And we know that Sarah, who was 10 years younger than him, than Abraham, had the same father but a different mother. So, it, obviously, Abraham's mother had died. He was separated from her. And then when he was instructed to leave Ur of the Chaldees, we know his other brother, Nahor, did not travel with them so he was separated from Nahor and then um, he was separated from Lot whom he loved dearly because he didn't have a son at the time and Lot his nephew was very dear to his heart but they became separated and even on two occasions he was separated temporarily from his own wife and he would have been um, permanently separated from her if God had not intervened and then after um Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other cities of the Sidon Valley were destroyed. He was separated from all of his friends and acquaintances, all the people that he had known who lived in those cities. And he had come to know them very well because he had gone to rescue them at one point in time when they had been taken captive by King Ketileomer. And then he was even removed from all of the people he had come to know living in the area of Mamre near Hebron where he lived because he left Mamre and went down to live in Gerar. So he had a life of separations, but that's kind of how life is, isn't it? You think about it. It's one separation after another. That's what's going to be so wonderful about heaven. We will not be separated from our loved ones who know the Lord ever, ever, ever again. But separation from loved ones and friends and neighbors and acquaintances is all a part of our lifelong experience living in a world which is cursed by sin. Some separations are simply the consequence of death. Of course, death is the consequence of sin entering into the world. Um, Some are the result of the sins of others, such as when Lot chose to move to Sodom and pridefully never came back to Abraham. Some separations are due to our own sin, And we have an example of that when Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife and lost her, first of all, to Pharaoh in Egypt and secondly to Abimelech down in Gerar. And yet other separations are God-directed separations. Knowing what is best for his children to live godly lives and to accomplish his purposes, he sometimes orchestrates situations so that we are separated from those who, in some cases, might otherwise hold us back from becoming all that he wants us to be. And that is why God commanded Abraham's separation to begin with from his father's house and told him to, to leave his father's house and travel away from Ur of the Chaldees. And that is also why God agreed with Sarah when she advised Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, which is what we looked at last week in Genesis 21, verses 10 to 12. So to this point in Abraham's life, I would venture to say that this was perhaps the most difficult separation of all. Ishmael was his firstborn son, and Abraham dearly, dearly loved Ishmael. But the separation was necessary, and it was necessary for the accomplishment of God's purposes, not only for Isaac, but also for Ishmael himself. So Abraham obeyed God. And in doing so, he was really being mentally and emotionally and spiritually prepared to be willing to sacrifice himself or separate himself even from his the son of promise, Isaac. And that's what we'll be actually looking at when we come back from our Thanksgiving break. It's in the very next chapter. He will be asked by God to separate himself willingly from the son of promise. So Abraham was learning as we all learn, really as we go through life, he was learning that there is only one person who will never leave us nor forsake us. Some people leave us, they don't want to leave us, but they leave us because of death. Death separates us from them. But there is one who will never leave us nor never and never forsake us, and that one, as you know, is the Lord himself. And so Abraham need to, needed to learn, and he was learning, that there is nothing or no one that we can hold on to permanently in this world other than God himself. He was learning that even if he did not understand everything from his low-view perspective, which is what we have down here on earth, even if he didn't understand it all, he was still to obey God. It never—it just had simply never benefited either himself or anyone else when he had done otherwise, you know, when he had not obeyed God. So the best thing to do, and he was learning this, was to just obey God, even if he did not understand. So although it grieved his heart very deeply, we'll see that as we get into the lesson here, he did cast out Hagar and her son and his son, Ishmael. And that event and its consequences is what we're going to look at this morning as we cover Genesis 21, verses 11 to 21. We'll look at four subdivisions. The first three have to do with the scripture, and the last one has to do, again, with um, typology or an allegory, which is given to us in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. First of all, we'll look at the grievous dismissal. Then we'll look at great despair. And thirdly, God's deliverance and then in that last section we'll look at some glorious depths, depths in the Bible. So we'll begin with the grievous dismissal and for this read with me verses 11 to 14. Well let me start with 10 just to review a little bit. It says um, where, well let me start with 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian which she had born unto Abraham mocking. That's talking about Ishmael, 17 years old, mocking little two- or three-year-old Isaac. Verse 10, Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And now here we start our lesson today. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son, meaning because of his son Ishmael. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham's joy over the birth of his son Isaac did not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that he had stopped loving or caring about very deeply his other son, his firstborn son, Ishmael. Abraham dearly, dearly loved the son who had been born to him when he was 86 years old. And we got a glimpse of that deep love back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 18. Remember, after God had told Abraham that he was going to bless Sarah with a son, What initially Abraham did was fall on his face, he laughed with joy, he fell on his face, and he um, worshiped the Lord with this worshipful joy and laughter. But then, very soon, his thoughts immediately turned to who? Ishmael, his only son at that time. And he cried out, and we can just hear his love for Ishmael in the cry that he, um, he gave to the Lord when he said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And then it must have really relieved him greatly when he heard God promise that he would bless Ishmael and that he would make him... Fruitful, and he would multiply him exceedingly, that he would actually have 12 sons or 12 princes, and he too would become a great nation. You can read all those promises about Ishmael in Genesis 17, verse 20. However, as we learned in the last lesson, the birth of Isaac brought out some very unfavorable characteristics about uh, our character flaws in Ishmael, brought them out to our Uh, sight We hadn't seen them before. His mockery of little toddler Isaac displayed really more than just uh, cruelty against the child. It was displaying disrespect for the promises and the plans of God himself, which had all been clearly stated to be centered in Isaac. So although Sarah may have responded to Ishmael's persecution of her little son more out of concern for her child than for God's promises. Yet God's agreement with Sarah's command to cast out both Hagar and Ishmael had a much higher concern. Actually, God was thinking on a number of different levels, as he usually does because God is so deep and so complex. He was thinking on many levels. He was actually thinking and planning, which he had planned from the foundation of the earth, really, that all of this separation was actually going to be the best thing for everybody involved, everyone, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael. It was going to be better for the peace, of the home. It was going to be better for the peace of the home of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And it was, as we'll see, it was going to really be better for Hagar and Ishmael, too. God never acts unjustly. We need to understand that. He never does anything unjustly. There were serious reasons for his agreement with Sarah to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael's persecution of Isaac, as I said, was not just. Uh, As we said last week, it was not just teenage teasing. It manifested a great dishonoring of spiritual truths, as well as really a serious threat on Isaac's life. Satan would have loved nothing better than to have used Ishmael as he had used Cain to to destroy his own brother. You know, Satan throughout the Old Testament was always, always attempting to find human instruments to help him destroy the messianic line which would lead to the Savior or the seed of the woman. Furthermore, the presence of Ishmael in Abraham's household was a danger for Abraham. It was a temptation. Now, you have to think about this one. But having Ishmael still in the home was a temptation to Abraham's willingness to give his full inheritance to Isaac. You see, God could see that very possibly, very possibly what would have happened if Ishmael had remained under Abraham's roof. The friction between the two sons, as, especially as Isaac grew older the friction would have increased, and that would have disrupted the whole household. It was already beginning to disrupt the household, even when Isaac was a toddler. And that disruption would also spoil their testimony before whom? Abimelech and all the people in Gerar. They'd have no testimony at all because they'd see just a fighting household. So a separation, God understood that a separation was better sooner than later, because in a few more years, Ishmael would have been a full-fledged man, and he might have refused to depart, and he might have caused great trouble and even harm. Also, we have to realize that God would soon be putting Abraham to the supreme test of his life. In the very next chapter, in chapter 22, he was going to command Abraham to sacri- to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. And, of course, this gave us, will give us, and it, it'll be so exciting to study it, but it's going to give us another beautiful prophetic picture of the one-day sacrifice that God himself would make in offering his one and only begotten son for the sins of the world. So since God knew that he was going to require Abraham's willingness to give up his son, he had to make sure that Abraham's obedience was not helped or not aided with thoughts that God's promises might still be able to be fulfilled through Ishmael. When God would ask Abraham to willingly offer up Isaac, God wanted Abraham to understand uh, completely that Ishmael was out of the picture. You know, if he was willing to offer Isaac, he could not think in his mind, well, I guess God will fulfill all those covenant promises now through Ishmael. That was not, God wanted to make sure that that was not an option in Abraham's mind at all. Isaac... In Abraham's mind was to be the one and only son of promise. So God wanted to make sure he narrowed down Abraham's uh, choices to just one possibility. And you understand that, don't you? In light of the picture of Christ being the one and only begotten son of the father. Well, then there is another reason why God told Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and that reason has to do with Hagar being a picture in type, you know, a prophetic picture, of the law, the Mosaic law, and of the Old Covenant, of the the Old Testament, which was enacted on Mount Sinai. And I'm not going to get into that right now, but we will as we get into the last section, which you noticed, remember, was called Great or Not Great. What is it called? Glorious Depths. Glorious Depths. We'll get into that when we get there. Putting from him, Ishmael may have been actually more grievous. I don't know this for sure, but it does say that this was very grievous, for Abraham to do. It may have actually been more grievous for Abraham to um, cast out Ishmael than to obey the command to sacrifice Isaac. Now, why in the world would I say that after I said that this was the supreme test of his life? well, The reason I say that is because in Isaac's case, we learn that Abraham actually believed that God would do what? Even if he... Killed him. Right. We learn in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, that Abraham had full faith that even if he did sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. However, in casting out Ishmael, Abraham did not know that he would ever set eyes on that son again. And as far as we know, we're, we're not really sure that he did set eyes on him again physically. And he probably didn't know if he would even set eyes on him again in the next life, spiritually, because the young man did not show any indications of salvation. So that would be, would that not be harder for you? If you had two sons and you knew one was saved and he would resurrect again, you know, in the, great resu- in the rapture of the church, but you didn't know about the other son, it'd be harder to offer it, or to cast out the one that you didn't know about, his salvation. But God, so this was a very grievous thing for Abraham, but God does not ever ask his children to do difficult and grievous things without helping them to accomplish those tasks. He knew that Abraham's heart was very heavy. He knew that what he was asking Abraham to do was just going to tear a big chunk out of his heart. In fact, the word which is used in Hebrew for grievous that you see twice, first of all, you see it in verse 11, and then you see it in verse 12. And in verse 11, it says the thing was very grievous. But that Hebrew word for grievous actually means to shake violently. Now, when we read the account in chapter 22 about Abraham offering up Isaac, we don't read that he shook violently, but we do with Ishmael. But it says that he he literally was shaking. He was so upset. He was affected to the core of his inner being about this necessary separation from Ishmael. But see, God knew all this. God knew how difficult this was going to be, and therefore he helped him to be able to Accomplish this task. First of all, in Genesis 21 12, God reminded Abraham of his great purpose. You know, get the big picture, Abraham. See what I am doing. He reminded Abraham that Isaac was to be the promised son. He says, In Isaac, Shall thy seed be called? So God was reminding Abraham that it was going to be through Isaac that God's chosen seed would come. And that refers to not only the people of God, speaking of true Israel and the true church, you know, in other words, all true believers would come through the line of Isaac, but also it refers to the ultimate seed, the seed with a capital S. The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would come not through the line of Ishmael, but he would come through the line of Isaac. They were not to come from the son of the bondwoman. Well, secondly, then God assured Abraham, he's really reminding him here, that Ishmael would not perish. And this probably brought the the best comfort to Abraham. In verse 13, God uh, God told Abraham that he would make of the bondwoman's son what? a nation. So he's promising here that he would take care of Ishmael. He would bless him. Why? Was this because Ishmael deserved God's blessing and God's love and God's concern after he had demonstrated his disdain for God's promises and power fulfilled in Isaac? Was it because Isaac deserved this? No. It was because of Abraham. Notice what God told Abraham. He said that he would make Ishmael a nation because why? Because he is, right, he is your son. He is thy seed. That's why he would bless Ishmael. God had called, I mean, Abraham had called out to God. We already looked at this once, on behalf of Ishmael, when Ishmael was simply a boy of 13 years of age. And God had promised back then that he would make of Ishmael a great nation. So what he's really doing here is simply reminding Abraham of that promise. He, he reminded him that he does not break his, he does not break his promises. He does not break his word. He doesn't forget his promises or his word. And he never changes his mind about his word either. So he's simply reminding him that Ishmael is going to be a great nation. So he is not going to perish. So therefore, having been reminded of God's providential care for his son, this made his task a lot easier. And he was able to send forth... The bondwoman Hagar and her son and take fact in the comfort or take comfort in the fact that God would uh, personally watch out for them I mean after all God had provided for both of them before had he not I remember back in chapter 16 when Hagar had run away from Sarah did God provide for her was Ishmael with her Yes, he was, because she was pregnant. (laughs) So actually, Ishmael and Hagar have been out in the wilderness before, and we found that God did provide and protect them there. In fact, in Hagar's first wilderness experience, what had happened? She'd come face to face with the Lord himself, the angel of the Lord. And we talked about the fact that he was The pre incarnate Christ. So that first wilderness experience had meant her salvation. So it turned out to be a very good thing for Hagar. So, could it be then that God was going to use the second separation of Hagar and Ishmael? Who is now seventeen years old? But back then he was still in the womb. Now he's seventeen years old. Was God going to use this second separation, this second experience in the wilderness, for another great purpose? Do you think? Possibly. Could it be that the separation might not only be for the best good of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, but that uh, and that it would be the best for God's long term? plans concerning Christ and Israel and the true church, but that it also might be the best good for Ishmael himself. So once again, we see how God's word, God spoke to Abraham, we see how God's word provides the believer with the relief that he needs in times of great distress and despair. And grief, it is what gives the believer the power that he needs to accomplish Whatever God has asked him to do, no matter how difficult it is, God's word will help you to accomplish it. It provides us with hope. It provides us with peace, even in the midst of conflict. Well, after hearing God speak, Abraham's task, although it was still extremely difficult for him, he was able to perform with a far lighter heart than he would have been without God having helped him out there. Now, we are told then that, God, that um, Abraham rose up early in the morning. He's always doing that. He's like Terry Doby. He always gets up really early in the morning. <laughs> and he took some bread, and it says uh, a water container. actually says a, a bottle of water, doesn't it? And... Um, And we'll talk about that. And he placed it on Hagar's shoulder, and then he sent she and Ishmael away. Now, once God had spoken to him and made it clear that this was his will, we find that Abraham responded very promptly, first thing the next morning. He did not delay, even though it was a very distressing job for him to do. And most surely it was not accomplished without a great deal of tears. And I would imagine that Ishmael was very upset about this whole thing and not in a real good spirit. Yet Abraham was wise enough to know, maybe he had learned this back in Haran, when he had delayed in Haran, you know, because of his father. He was wise enough to know that any delay would have only made his obedience that much more difficult. A delay may even have broken down his will to complete the assignment. Do delays have a way of doing that? Do delays have a way of attacking our wills? Yeah, so what's the best thing to do when you know that you need to do something? Do it. (laughs) Do it right away. Promptness is the best way to deal with the duties that we know we must accomplish. Well, not only do we notice his promptness, but we also take note of the provisions. And they seem a little bit skimpy here. A little bit lean. He gave Hagar some bread, and then it says he gave her a bottle of water. Those are just simply the basic requirements to sustain life, bread and water. Now, the bottle of water actually refers to a skin of water, if you can see from that picture there, which probably held about 15 liters of water. And then he put it tenderly, he he put that, as you saw in this picture, put it tenderly on Hagar's shoulder. And that tells us about, uh, that was a sort of a gentle token which tells us of his genuine concern and care for this woman, this Egyptian bond woman. After all, she had not been the one who was responsible for the conflict which had arisen. She had simply been a victim of Sarah's and and Abraham's impatience. Furthermore, Hagar was his sister in the Lord. She was a fellow believer, as well as the mother who dearly loved his son. So the least Abraham could do was make their parting as gentle and as kind as he possibly could. But why, we might wonder, would very wealthy Abraham simply give these two exiles bread and water? You know, just just the simple provisions for their journey. Why wouldn't he give them more than that? Well, perhaps it was because he was demonstrating to the Lord his total faith in him to provide for them. And perhaps, too, it was because he knew that any uh, show of wealth, you know, if he had, had given them all kinds of things to carry with them, that that would actually endanger them greater than, than hunger and thirst because any amount of wealth would attract thieves who would think very little of killing a foreign solitary woman and her teenage son to get their goods. So what Abraham had provided for them actually would have gotten them safely to an oasis or to a traveling caravan which they could join if Hagar had not gotten lost. Perhaps, too, God had instructed Abraham to only give them bread and water, knowing that this would work. You know how God works all things together for good? Maybe God instructed him, just give them bread and water, because he knew that this would do good for Ishmael. It would be good for him to find himself in serious danger caused by his own sinful heart attitude toward his brother and toward God. So anyway, verse 14 ends by telling us that Hagar departed, along with Ishmael, of course, and then it says that she wandered, and the word wandered in the Hebrew means that she lost her way. She wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, it's not known where she planned to go, if she even knew. She may have been in such distress at this point in her life that she just started walking with no goal to where she was going. She had no relatives, as far as we know, in the land there. She's now in the, in the land of um, the Philistines, but um, she had no relatives in the whole land of Canaan, as far as we know. And she did not latch on to some passing caravan, which people in her position would commonly have done. As she may have thought about going back to Egypt... Because remember where, she, where they are now, they're in Gerar. I don't have a map, but they're in Gerar, which was right on the border of Egypt. So it wouldn't have been that diffi- it wouldn't have been that far for her if she had headed south to be into the land of Egypt. But after being away from Egypt for some 20 years, she may not really have cared about going back there. After all, who did she now believe in? The God of Abraham. And Egypt was full of idols. And perhaps she did not head that way because she did not want her son to be in a land full of idols. I don't know. This is all speculation. Except we know that she did not head south. She headed east because she wound up in the wilderness of Beersheba, which is to the east of Gerar. So she was either totally turned around backwards or she purposely did not go toward Egypt. But whatever her thoughts and her plans might have been, if she had any, I don't know if she even had any plans, but whatever the case was, she got lost. At least if you had asked her, she would have told you that she was lost. And as far as she knew, she was lost. But the Lord knew exactly where she was because he was the one who had been directing her steps all along the way. But not knowing that, She was in great despair, along with her son. And they uh, thought that the end had come for both of them, for sure. So let's look at their great despair. Genesis 21, verses 15 and 16. It says, And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child. And the word child that's used in the Hebrew... ...can refer to a young man or a, a child, all the way from a toddler up to a young man. That's the word that is used. So don't think of him as a little, little boy. We know that he's 17 years old. But it says, "...she cast the child under one of the shrubs, and she went and sat her and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bow shot." In other words, you know, if you shoot a, a bow and arrow... As far as the bow shot, that's how far she went to sit from him. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lift up her voice and wept. Well, whatever the situation may have been as to where Hagar was trying to go, she, who was the guide, she was the guide for both she and her son, she got lost and the supplies ran out. So in terrible despair, we see Hagar take her collapsed son, who was obviously dying of thirst, and she placed him under a shrub in order to give him some protection from the sun, because now they're in the wilderness, all right? So the sun is is, is uh, very hot. She may have been more accustomed, because she grew up in Egypt, maybe she was more accustomed to desert living than her son, and maybe this is why he collapsed before she did. I was trying to think of reasons why he collapsed first, and I also, also thought about the truth that women retain water better than men. <laughs> How many can vouch for that? <laughs> so maybe it's because, as a, as a woman... She retained water better than a young 17-year-old, probably slim boy. Or maybe he had given more of the water to his mother to drink, thinking that, you know, he was going to be Mr. Macho and he didn't need as much water as her. I don't know what the situation was, but he did begin to die while his mother still had some small measure of strength left. So anyway, not wanting to see her son die, Hagar then moved herself a bow shot away. She lifted up her voice and she began to cry, to weep. Now the lifting up her voice implies a calling out to God. Her words, let me not see the death of the child, along with her crying, her weeping, tell us that she had either forgotten or she no longer trusted in God's earlier promises regarding her son. And you can empathize with her in this can't you i mean i can't you're out there in the desert you're totally lost and your son is collapsed and as far as you can see he is dying he does not have much longer to live so it's it's hard for me to um say well naughty naughty hagar she should have remembered what god had told her before but she didn't at this point in time but she did at least remember enough to call out to the lord but you remember again back to chapter 16 at the well called Beher Lahairoi, God had told Hagar that her son would grow to be a wild man. Actually, meant a wild ass of a man, and he had told her that other. Um, he had told her that other things, like that his hand would be against every man's hand, and every man's hand would be against him. And if she had thought about those promises, she would realize that they had not yet come true. Hagar, at 17 years of age, was not yet a man. He was beginning to show traces of being a wild man, and he had already lifted up his hand, so to speak, against his brother. But these promises had not been um, fully accomplished. And furthermore, it would be very surprising if Abraham had not told Hagar about God's promises to him regarding Ishmael. Back in Genesis 17:20, where we've already been once, but God had told Abraham, remember Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee, and then God told him that Ishmael would be blessed, that he would bless him, that he would make him fruitful, that he would multiply him exceedingly, and that he would have 12 sons, and that he would become a great nation. Now, don't you think that Abraham would have shared that information with Hagar? I'm sure he must have. So she was either just too distraught to remember these promises or to, and to cling to them in spite of how terrible the circumstances looked before her very eyes, or else she, you know, she just, I don't know what the situation was, but she just did not remember them. But she did, as I said, she did remember to call out to God. and She was sure at this point that her son was going to die, and she did not want to see that happen. And so that's why she moved away. And she probably also then planned on dying herself. Yet, though her faith in God's promises was not very evident at this point in time, she did cry out to the right person. She cried out to the Lord. And what's even more important is that someone else cried out as well in his utter desperation. He cried out to the Lord. And it was his prayer that God was waiting for. And so we turn next to look at what? God's deliverance. Let's look at verses 17 to 21. It says, And God heard the voice of Hagar? No. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? He knows her name, doesn't he? Again, just like back in chapter 16. Then the angel of God says, Fear not, for God hath heard whose voice? The voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. Notice that pronoun, I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So twice in this, uh, in verse 17, we see that God specifically said that the voice of the lad was heard. God heard the voice of the lad. And we know, of course, that God, who was all-knowing and all-seeing and all-hearing, also, of course, had heard the voice of Hagar when she cried out. But it was the voice of the Lord that he was waiting for. The, the lad, not the Lord. It was the voice of the lad that he was waiting for. Thank you. God had seemingly, purposely allowed Hagar to get lost so that Ishmael would get to the end of his rope I mean he would get to the end of his pride and the end of his uh, own strength and finally call out to the Lord for his salvation so the angel of God who we know is again the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ and I'll tell you why in a minute but the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and reminded her that she did not need to make herself sick. She did not need to worry. That's why he said, What aileth thee? You don't need to ail. And what else did he tell her that she didn't need to do? She didn't need to fear. Because he said, Fear not. Why? Because God had heard Ishmael. Before getting themselves into such distress... Both Hagar and Ishmael should have remembered the the meaning of his name. What does Ishmael mean? Who remembers? It means God hears. So this is a play on his name here. God heard. God heard. The voice of God hears. His name, Ishmael, in Hebrew means God hears. They should have remembered that. They should have called out to him before this. Now, not only did this angel reveal that uh, he knew Hagar's name, but he's also reminding them that he knows Ishmael's name, that his name is God hears, because after all, he is the same one who told Hagar what to name her son. So why was God waiting to hear from Ishmael? Why did the angel of God not tell Hagar that her voice had been heard? Why did it have to be Ishmael's voice? Well, it was because Ishmael was the one who needed to ask for forgiveness. Who had been at fault the last time Hagar was in the wilderness? It had really been her fault. She should have stayed with Sarah, even though she was being mistreated. She was a slave and should not have run away. And she had a bit of a haughty spirit in front of sarah you know because i'm pregnant and you're not so the last time she was in the wilderness it was her fault she was the one who needed to call out to the lord now this time she's in the wilderness not because of her own doing it's ishmael's doing he was the one who needed to ask forgiveness uh, for forgiveness he was the one who needed to acknowledge his sin of persecuting his brother Isaac and uh, mocking the promises and the power of God himself which were pronounced and displayed in Isaac or by way of Isaac so Ishmael had to call out to God and ask for his mercy and for his grace Hagar had already come to believe in God back in Genesis 16 but Ishmael like his mother needed a wilderness experience in order to bring him to his knees. You know, when in our flesh, when you and I in our flesh finally come to the end of our own resources and to the end of our own strength, when we finally realize that our lives are empty and our souls are parched and that there is nothing at all we can do to save ourselves, that's at the point when we... Hopefully, we'll cry out to God and ask for his mercy and his grace. And is his grace and mercy there? Yes, it's there for us. Now, the angel of God is literally, in the Hebrew, the angel of Elohim. And that, actually, that name stands in contrast to the angel of the Lord who talked to Hagar back in Genesis chapter 16. The last time she was in the wilderness, the one who spoke to her was referred to as the angel of the Lord, and in Hebrew that is the angel of Jehovah. And that, the reason for the difference is because in chapter 16, Hagar was still in the household of Abraham. And the name Jehovah speaks of, that's God's covenant name. So she was still in Abraham's household, the one to whom the covenant promises were given. Now she's out from under Abraham's roof. So the angel of the Lord, who is the same person, it's still the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, whether he's the angel of Jehovah or the angel, angel of Elohim, because both of those are names for God. But here the Bible refers to him as the angel of Elohim because Elohim refers to his name um, in relation to his creation. So he's really reminding Hagar, look, I'm the creator of all that exists. I'm the creator of life. I don't need to worry about Ishmael's life or your life. I'm Elohim, and I'm the creator of bread and the creator of water. So there is a difference, and it's interesting to see all these little little just changes that the Holy Spirit purposely puts in the scripture. But in both instances, we know that it was indeed the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ because the pronoun, who's going to make him into a great nation? Just an angel? An angel doesn't have the power to do that. I will make him a great nation so we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hagar had um, had to show her faith, by obeying and she did she did it immediately she lifted she went over of course she had this meant she had to stop crying she had to stand up and she had to walk back over to Ishmael and then she demonstrated her faith by obeying obeying what the angel of the Lord had said she lifted up his head it says she lifted him up but this probably speaks to the fact that she lifted up his head and um And then as soon as she obeyed, it says that God did what? He opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. You see, the God of provision, Elohim of provision, is also the same Elohim who gives the sight to see that provision. The well had been there all along. He just opened her eyes so she could see it. In fact, as I said before, although Hagar had thought that she was lost and wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, God had actually been guiding her every footstep. Sometimes we might think that in life, you know, I just not, I don't seem like I have any purpose. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just sort of wandering around. But God is guiding our every footstep. He was purposely leading her straight to the well of life. For her and her son. The problem with Hagar had been that she had allowed despair to take over her thoughts and to blind her vision. Her faith had been placed upon the provisions of Abraham instead of what? The provisions of the Lord. And this is maybe one of the reasons why God needed to separate Hagar from Abraham. Hagar probably was trusting in Abraham for everything and he was providing for her abundantly. She had it made as long as she was with Abraham. Plenty of food to eat, a roof over her home. So sometimes separations are to get us from trusting in people or in a particular person in order for us to look to the Lord. She was trusting in the bread and the water that Abraham had given to her instead of the provisions that would come from God. And after all, Abraham, being a man, could only provide her with physical bread and physical water, but the the Lord could direct her to the bread of life and to the source of living water. And she needed that. She already had that. She'd forgotten about it, but her son especially needed that. So Hagar's mistake was very, very typical of what we often do. During times of trial and testing, we fail to see God's blessings and his provisions in those trials. Admittedly, this is hard to do in the midst of a trial, to see God's provision. We forget to cling to his promises, as we should. She, she had forgotten all about his promises. And uh, we forget to ask him... To open up our eyes so that we can see what we already have. What he's already provided for us to help us through our trials and our troubles. Sometimes the answers to our problems are right there before our eyes. We just cannot see them because we've blocked our vision, our spiritual eyes, and and we've clouded our, our minds with our own depression and despair. So she's very typical of what we all do. So, and I think it's interesting, too. There's so many comparisons between her first experience in the wilderness and this second experience in the wilderness, but I thought it was very interesting to remember that the last place she was at was uh, she named, she was at a well. Remember a fountain of water, a well, and she named that well... A real long name, Be'eraleah, Hey, Roy, or something like that. (laughs) I said it right earlier, but do you know what that name means? God who sees me. So she named the water, the well of water, God sees, and now she's... She's the one who God opened her eyes so that she could see the water. It's just kind of like flip-flop. But theres I know the Holy Spirit did all that on purpose. So anyway, now her eyes are open, and she sees the water. So anyway, with her eyes opened by the Lord, she went to the well. She filled the water skin up with fresh water, and she returned to give Ishmael the life-sustaining water. Now, the big question, was Ishmael saved? Did the firstborn son of the bondwoman become a secondborn? Did he experience the freedom from bondage which only faith in the Lord can do, can provide? Well, the answer to that question I can't be dogmatic about, but I believe the answer is yes. And I believe this from some of the clues that we are given in the Scripture. The first one is found right here in verse 20, where it says, And God was with the lad. That is the exact same expression in the Hebrew, which is used of Joseph when he was uh, prospering in the house of the Egyptian captain of the guard, Potiphar. It says in there that God was with Joseph. And Joseph, was he a believer? Yes, he was very clearly a believer. Now, the second reason for believing that Ishmael came to genuinely know the Lord is because we are told that when he died, and this is over in Genesis 25, verse 17, that when Ishmael died, he was, and I think he was 137 years old, he was gathered unto his people. And that is the exact same Hebrew expression which is used of Abraham in Genesis 25, 8. It's used of Isaac in 35, 29, and which is used of Jacob in Genesis 49, Now, were those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were they saved men? Absolutely, they were saved men. Now, another hint... That we may have forgotten about was given by God to Abraham when Abraham had called out, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. What did God say to him in answer to that request? He said that he would bless him, that God would bless Ishmael. And I don't believe that any man can be blessed if he does not know, come to know the Lord and dies lost. That would be hard for me to say that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham by blessing Ishmael. If Ishmael died, lost. So if you ask me, I would say that, yes, this wilderness experience was orchestrated purposely by God for many reasons, for the benefit of everybody, but particularly for the benefit of Ishmael. Now, granted, Ishmael is a picture in type still of the flesh, and of the, the first birth and all of that. But that does not mean that the individual himself could not have come, become saved. And he is a picture and type, really, of all of us before we come to know the Lord because we were all born in the flesh, right? We were all at one time children of the bondwoman because we were all in bondage to our flesh, nature. We were all in bondage to our sins. And like Ishmael, who mocked the things of the Lord... Uh, We were at once enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. Although we might have thought that we knew where we were headed in our pre-salvation lives and may have been trusting in our own, and we were (laughs) trusting in our own wisdom and our own strength to get us there, yet we were really wandering aimlessly, although God Uh, used that wandering to lead us to himself. This is true in my life, and I I wonder if you can look back at your life and see the same thing. Um, I was growing weary and thirsty as I was wandering around in this life, but I was blind to the water of life that was available in Christ all along. It was right there before me. I just didn't have eyes to see it. And finally, in utter despair... What do we do if this is you? You finally, just things get so bad that you just cry out to God. And because he loves us, not because we deserve it, just like Ishmael didn't deserve it, but because he loves us, he reaches down and he lifts us up. Remember what Hagar was told to do? She was to lift him up speaking of, I think, his head, but maybe she lifted his whole body, he reaches down, he lifts us up, and he forgives us our sins, and he brings that water of life to our parched souls. And then we are set free from our bondage to sin. So Ishmael is a picture and type of really all sinners before they come to know the Savior. Well, God not only provided Ishmael with water to save his life, but then he also gave him the abilities to survive and to support himself and his mother in the wilderness because it says he became a skilled archer, and he and Hagar were able to live in the wilderness of Paran, which is a wilderness region in the Sinai Peninsula. Actually, um, Hagar... How do we see Hagar benefiting from this whole separation? She benefited greatly. She's no longer a slave. She actually becomes the matriarchal head of a great nation because she goes and gets a wife for Ishmael from uh, Egypt, a woman like herself. I hope that they led this woman to the Lord. But anyway, she got got him a wife, and they had 12 sons. So Hagar, says, just think of her life. She started out as a slave girl in Egypt, and she wound up being the mother head of a great nation because Ishmael had 12 sons. I don't know how many daughters, but he had 12 sons, so she at least had 12 grandsons to, to dote herself on. And then how many granddaughters, I don't know, but, I mean, a wonderful life she wound up having. A free woman. She was no longer a slave. If she had stayed with Abraham, she would have always suffered knowing that she was not the first wife, that she was a bondwoman. She would have always been thought of as a bondwoman. And I mean, she just, God used this whole separation for her own good, just as uh, much as He did with Ishmael. Well, more with Ishmael, because Ishmael came to know Him, I believe. Okay, now we're going to get, uh, as we did in last week's lesson, we're going to close with looking at um, Hagar, a little bit of typology here. We're going to look at Hagar as a um, picture of the law. Actually, Apostle Paul, back in the, the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, he saw the whole event of the separation of Hagar and Ishmael from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac as an allegory. You looked at this a little bit in your homework lessons um, last week, but he he speaks of it as an allegory involving law and grace. Now, as we consider Paul's allegory in Galatians 4, we find that he actually shows a contrast on a number of levels. We have Sarah versus Hagar, We have a free woman versus a bond woman. We have the new covenant versus the old covenant. We have grace versus works. We have the heavenly Jerusalem versus the earthly Jerusalem. And we have um, essentially Christianity versus Judaism. And We also have the fact that she's a uh, Sarah's a wife and Hagar's not a wife, and Sarah produced Isaac, who is a picture of the true believer, whereas Hagar produced Ish- Ishmael, who is a picture of the works of the flesh. So there's a lot of different levels here, and it's not my intention right now, in the few minutes remaining, to give us a, a study on this section of Galatians because I don't have time to develop all of these interesting contrasts. But the point that Paul was making is that true believers are to live under the blessings of God's grace. In other words, true believers are to identify with Sarah. And we are not to live under the bondage of the law. So we are not to identify ourselves with Hagar. And I think if we look at Hagar just real briefly, it's going to help us better understand the relationship between the Mosaic law, which was uh, represented by... um, the Old Covenant and Mount Sinai and the earthly Jerusalem and the grace of God, which is represented by Sarah and by the New Covenant, which was enacted on Calvary and um, represented by the heavenly Jerusalem, all those who will spend eternity in the heavenly Jerusalem because of placing their faith in Christ. So let's look at Hagar a minute. Hagar was not Abraham's wife. I'll put this back up in a minute. I see some of you copying. In the scripture, ever hear God, the Holy Spirit, refer to Hagar as Abraham's wife. She was not a second wife, as some in her culture might have said. She was merely added alongside of Sarah. And this is true when it comes to grace and law. Contrary to what many people think, if you probably just went out on the street and asked people which came first, grace or law, most people would probably say law, because they would think of the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as grace. But that's not true. The law did not come first. God began with grace. Adam and Eve were brought into a covenant relationship with God merely because of his grace. Israel was redeemed from out of Egypt by an act of God's grace. Long before God ever gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, um, Israel was already in a covenant relationship with God. In other words, Israel was already married to God. The law hadn't even come into play yet. And the covenant relationship that Israel had with God was based merely be- on his what? His, his, his grace, his love, his grace. Also, Hagar was a bondwoman. She was a servant to Sarah, just as law was the servant of grace. The law was eventually brought in, you know, there on Mount Sinai, the law was brought in to serve as a schoolmaster, as a teacher, to keep the infant nation of Israel separate from the other nations. If she didn't have those laws, pretty soon she would be behaving just like the other nations. And she would amalgamate into them, and Israel would have been lost. They would have intermarried, and that would have been the end of Israel. So the law was brought in as her teacher, her schoolmaster, to keep her under control so that she might be prepared for the coming of her Messiah. Now, we learn this in Galatians 3, verse 24, in case you're interested. So the law was given so as to reveal sin, Romans 3.20. But the law has no capability of redeeming anyone from sin. It reveals the fact that we're sinners, but it can't redeem us from the sin. It reveals our need for what? For grace. That's what the law reveals. It reveals that we need grace because we can't possibly fulfill the law. There's no way anyone can fulfill the law except Christ. He's the only one who did. The law teaches us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that apart from God's grace, we can do nothing to save ourselves. Hagar could do absolutely nothing to set herself free. She was a slave. She was a bondwoman. Only Abraham's grace could release her from her bondage. Now, Abraham, who do you think he typifies or pictures? He's a picture of God. He represents the Lord. Sarah represents, what did we say? Grace. So it was God's grace. In other words, it was Sarah who finally gave Hagar her freedom. Right? The first time Sarah caused Hagar to leave and go out into the wilderness Hagar truly encountered God's grace because she was set free spiritually that's when she had her new birth the second time sarah caused her to leave you know cast out this bondwoman and her son hagar was set free from her bondage physically because then she was free she was no longer physically a, sa- a slave so you see Hagar could do nothing to set herself free she was a slave only Abraham's grace could set her free and the one who actually set her free was Sarah Abraham's grace do you see it <laughs> I know it's pretty deep but hope you're getting it also, if, as we review the life of Hagar, we find that she was never supposed to have Abraham's child. In fact, we have the truth that the law, or in this, we have the fact that the, the law cannot give what only grace can give. The law of Moses could never provide what only Christ on Calvary can give, which is eternal life and joy, and holiness, and the Holy Spirit, and eternal inheritance, all those kinds of things. These things only come by grace through faith. So you see, only by Sarah, grace, through Abraham, faith, could come Isaac, the promised son from whom the Savior, the source of all these eternal blessings, would one day come. The law only produces sons and daughters of bondage, and they're represented by Ishmael. The law of Moses can only produce slaves. It can never bring freedom. Okay. And then continuing with the picture and type of Hagar is a law, we find that she was cast out. It's only when we realize that there is nothing at all that we can do by way of obedience to the law or by way of good works to merit our own salvation, it's only when we cast out all of our own attempts to appease God that we are then free to be saved by grace. Self-righteousness is the very thing that keeps men from salvation because they trust in their own good works instead of Christ's work on their behalf. So an application of the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael symbolizing the two of them symbolize the law and flesh is the need to forsake our own attempts to please God rather than simply, you know, trusting fully in Christ's work on our behalf so I know that was a little deep maybe you can get the tape and go over it again or study Galatians chapter 4 and maybe get a commentary and read through that and see if you can um, get a grasp on it but you know both Isaac and Ishmael were alike in one sense I think they were alike in the sense that both got saved but uh, and you may disagree with me on that that's fine you can do your own research and see what you come up with about Ishmael getting saved or not. But they were alike in one sense because they were both the sons of who? They were both the sons of Abraham. And that's why both the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught that it was not enough to merely claim Abraham as one's father. Remember what the scribes and Pharisees were always doing? They thought they were A-OK before God because we're the sons of Abraham. They thought that was their big deal. That was going to get them into heaven. You know, even the the Muslims can claim Abraham as their father and do make that claim. So the difference rests in one question. The difference rests in who is your mother and in what way were you born. See, if Hagar is our mother... Then we are merely born of human means. The law is still our mother, and we are children of bondage. However, if Sarah is our mother, then our birth was by way of God's covenant promise, which is by grace, through faith, in whom... In the promised seed of the woman, the Savior. And if she's our mother, therefore, we are free. We are free men and women. So the big question is who is your mother, your spiritual mother? Is she your own devised way to heaven? You know, the way which seemeth right in your eyes, but the way which leadeth to destruction? Or is she grace? Is she Hagar? Or is she grace? Grace is God's way of salvation, which is a freely offered divine miracle of grace, which takes place when you place your faith in that promise to the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the big question. Not who is your father. Of course, we know we want our father to be God. But looking at it through this typology, not who is your father, is he Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of the Christians. We call him the father of our faith. He's the father of the Jews. And he's the father of the Muslims. But who is your mother? Is she law or is she grace? And I hope she's grace. Let's pray.